Welcome to The Derivative by RCM Alternatives, where we dive into what makes alternative investments go, analyze the strategies of unique hedge fund managers, and chat with interesting guests from across the investment world. Hello there. It's back to school season, and we're back with a great lineup the next few weeks. Um, battling a little bit of a cold here doing this intro, so apologize. Uh, might have been from the great uh, trip to Philly we had. Recorded the live panel event there as a pod, so we'll put that up in a couple of weeks. For you to hear yours truly, moderating a panel with Tim Pickering of Hospice, talking commodities, Corey Hofstein of Newfound, talking return stacking, and Brian Maloof of Campbell & Company, talking systematic macro. It was a lot of fun. Check it out. On to this episode, we're back talking options trading and volatility and the like with computer scientist turned mutual fund PM, Russ Kalaitis. We get into Russ's background as that computer scientist, what's going on in San Francisco. We talk Uncle Warren selling naked puts and then dive into the various option strategies Russ uses in his model to do all sorts of things like market participation, upside capture, and downside protection. Send it. This episode is brought to you by RCM's Outsource Training Desk, which does voice, electronic, DMA, all sorts of other execution services for groups from mutual funds to hedge funds to individual investors. 24-6. 6 because the market is an open Saturday. So 24-7 minus the Saturday is at 24-6. Visit rcmalts.com to learn more. And now, back to the show. All right. Hey, everybody. We're here with Russ Kalaitis or Russell. What do you, what do you prefer? Russ? I always call you Russ. Sure. All right. We'll go with Russ. Um, thanks for being here. Where are you in your... Lovely home there. San Fran? I am right in the middle of San Francisco. Uh, so is it as bad as everyone's making it out these days? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. Um, <clears throat> I get the same question every time from Chicago, right? We just had yeah, some sure. woman snuck a gun into uh, the White Sox game under a fat roll. She put wow. a gun under a fat roll to get through the metal detectors and then shot someone during the game. So we got our own problems here in Chicago. But sorry. So yeah, we just did that question. So well, I get that, that happen. Um, you know, parts are parts are pretty bad, but um, the main kind of residential areas are, are really fine. Um, in fact, the area I'm in is, you know, really perfect. We've got very few problems. Um, but have you seen people like wanting moving out en masse or is it contained is that just in the headline um not really you know again kind of the i think some of the areas that were sort of hard hit were kind of the, the downtown financial district soma um i think was hit pretty hard um we actually had a kind of an odd incident the other day here which is unusual <clears throat> someone um was carjacked uh five people jumped in the car and drove down a street that actually you know we've got all these hills and this particular street just sort of ended there was a staircase that it picked up down below well they drove right off the end of the Whoa. street <laughs> so the car careened off of that did a somersault it was probably about three stories high and um landed on its roof Whoa. Wasn't like the seventies car chase movies in San Francisco. It, it looked like, a lot like that. We had the commercial real estate guy in the pod a while back. He was like, he wouldn't buy commercial real estate in San Fran, Chicago, or New York. Yeah. So we feel your pain, but yeah, I'm fine. I'm still living here in Chicago. Can't scare me away. 
Well, this made the news and everything. Um, I'll send you a link to it. Yeah, send it after, uh, after I've been here. But you went to school in New York, correct? That's right. So where? what was that like? You grew up California, went to New York, or no, grew up in New York um, and ended up in California? I was actually born out west. I was born in Hawaii. We moved around a lot when I was younger. Um, Army my, brat? <laughs> Navy brat? My, my, my dad worked for Pan American. So ah. we up in Seattle a little bit. We were in California. We actually lived in Afghanistan for a couple of years. Really? And then moved to Long Island, New York, yeah. where I mostly grew up. And then um, I went to Manhattan for school. Um, and I, uh, I went to Columbia and I got a bachelor's degree there, entered a master's degree program. That was all in computer science, focusing on AI doing research in AI and then <clears throat> went into the MBA program and got an MBA in finance and marketing. Nice. Yeah. Uh, and not to insult you right off the bat and call you old, but right. What was it like back then with the computer science and AI versus today, right? It must be vastly different or you think the nuts and bolts of it were pretty much the same? Well, we were really kind of at the, the early stage of, you know, the, the, the building blocks of what you see now. So um, you know, something that I was particularly interested in was the natural language processing, which is, uh, you know, the recognition of text, words, et cetera, as opposed to, um, you know, computer programming and direct database access. So for example, um, you know, we, we would work on a zoology database where you could query the computer, you know, how many legs does a panda have? And it would answer a panda has four legs, which was, you know, really kind of a pronounced step forward at the time. You know, of course, now we take that for granted. And with chat GPT, three and a half and four and, um, uh, you know, some of the others, uh, the computers have, have really gotten, you know, much more advanced than that. Do you think it's mainly the processing speed and what they're able to do on the back end or is it they've made leaps and bounds on how it's handled right i'm sure you were dealing with much slower speed in order to run those queries and whatnot oh yeah yeah i know the this, the the compute as they call it is is increased dramatically um we really were bumping up against the upper edge of what was possible because of uh you know computation speeds and of course now i've got more power in my iPhone than I do in the, you know, we use uh, digital equipment's deck 20s back then. Um, so it's, there's a huge movement forward. The, uh, a pod, our pod last week on the uh, power trader, and he was quoting that it's 10 times the amount of energy is used for a AI query than a normal Google search. Right. So and then it's like something like a hundred or a thousand X. I can't remember to actually train the model. Right. Right. So it has consequences, all this electricity we use and all this power, all the uh, chips we need, all the materials to do the chips, all that. That's right. Yeah. I mean, I, I listened to someone the other day who was saying that um, chat GPT four took 10 times the resources of three and five will be 10 times four, et cetera. But, you know, the, the results that you get out of that are, you know, tremendous. I mean, um, 
some industry leaders are suggesting that the reduction in workforce uh, utilization is something like 30% kind of across the board for all these, you know, kind of um, more sophisticated uh, human resource intensive roles, you know, yeah. uh, marketing and um, uh, consumer lawyers, communication, yeah, <laughs> lawyers, Accountants. Yeah. yeah. Um, so what made you go down the finance path instead of the computer science path? Something well, in there said like, yeah, this isn't for me. It really was that we were bumping up against the, the, the edge of what was, what was possible at the time. I mean, we spent, you know, tremendous amounts of manpower getting to the point where we could build this sort of a database and be able to access it through a natural language. But, um, you know, the next, it looked like the next big movements forward, the next big leaps were probably gonna be 10 or 20 years off. And I I just didn't think there was a lot of return and spending a lot more, you know, spending the next 10 or 20 years making these very small incremental gains. And, uh, you know, finance numbers were really pretty interesting to me. so. Um, I went to the business school. Uh, and then out of there, got into, where was it, Goldman Sachs? Right. So you must have been doing something right to catch someone's eye over there. Um, well, I think, you know, I think uh, large financial firms are really just kind of catching up to uh, the uh, progress being made in the computer side. So they were looking for people that had technological capabilities and we're good with numbers and that sort of thing. And so um, right, just like they're looking for high end coders and whatnot today. Yeah, it's really, you know, frankly, it's been pretty consistent. Um, it's been a good way for them to try and separate themselves to get some competitive advantage. So take us through the backstory from God, entry level or whatever level job at Goldman through the next stages to eventually starting your own fund, running your own fund? Well, I, I moved around Wall Street a little bit. It was Goldman and then Merrill and some, uh, some bulge brackets and boutiques. And um, I guess my last, my last job at a large, it was a international investment bank. I was running the structured finance group. So we were doing cross-border complicated trades involving derivatives and accounting and tax and things like that. And I'd been I've been uh trading for my own account for a long time. <clears throat> and uh in fact I was I was doing some option strategy trades, and uh there were really kind of two components to it. One was picking a, uh, an instrument of stock. And the other was the structure around that stock. And it was, it involved primarily buying um, puts and calls. And my, my technique for choosing stocks was working pretty well, but I wasn't really making any money. And at the same time, we were approached by, by actually it was Goldman, who was doing large uh, trades for Berkshire Hathaway. And you can go back and see this in the in the press at the time, but Warren Buffett was um, selling large uh, 
out of the money put options on major indices. It was the S&P, NASDAQ, Russell, uh, the Nikkei. I think he was doing something in Europe as well. Not Uncle Warren. He's famously like anti-derivatives to the general public, well, was, even though on the back him. end. Yeah, yeah, he didn't like him. He sold him. Uh, but he's so selling. Were, he, sorry, I meant he was selling puts. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Naked. And uh, so they were million dollar trades, I think, at the time. And so gold was the other side of these, but they were running out of their uh, the exposure they could take to to Warren to Berkshire Hathaway. So they were looking to offload that. And so we did mm. some analysis looking to, to take on that exposure from them. And it was, you know, around then that I realized, or in fact, it was then really that I realized I was just on the wrong side of the trade. Yeah. Um, when I was buying, I really should have been selling. And so I kind of revamped that half of my uh, equation to more for, focus on the, the premium collection, the premium writing. Um, and you're saying from a flows perspective or just you saw Warren selling earning premium and said that might be a uh, a better better gig. Yeah, it was really that. It was um you know, he's obviously a really smart guy and if that was the side of the trade that he was on, there's a good reason to think it's a good side of the trade for me to be on. Good way to look into it more. Yeah. Um and so then said I'm you peeled out of whatever firm you were and started your own. Uh, well, so this was end of 2007 going to 2008. So there was, you know, as you know, there was this, uh, you know, financial meltdown. And yeah, hopefully you didn't sell puts right there. My group was eliminated. So at that point, I just turned to trading for my own account. Um, and then eventually said, hey, this is good enough. I'm making progress in my models to roll it out to customers. Right. So, you know, I've been helping out friends and family. And in 2011, that turned into a hedge fund. In 2016, we turned the hedge fund into a mutual fund, which is, uh, you know, the fund we're working on now. Um, so the idea behind the fund and your overall strategy. So, well, let's back up. Is your, how different is what you do today from what you were originally thinking up and, and designing for your original fund? Um, well, so I developed a model to analyze what the best positions, options, strikes, expirations were to buy or sell, um, back-tested that, and then ran it through an AI engine for further refinement. And that's really been, that model has really been the cornerstone for what we've been doing ever since. And that really hasn't changed. No, was, that, but, um, was it the entire universe of single name stocks or you started it? They're really just, just the S&P 500. Got it. And it ingests the entire universe of strikes and tenors? Right. right. Yeah. And the advantage of that was that there's there's a lot of liquidity. Um, the, the, the premium options were really pretty consistent. Um, and, you know, there was just a lot of strikes and explorations for us to work with. Uh, and so that's that's changed a bit. You know, we went from really kind of monthly explorations to weeklies and now really pretty much daily. So there are really strikes for every day of the week. Um, and so that's given us an opportunity to take more positions and further refine what we're doing. And we've also right. refined our hedging strategy uh, a bit, really quite a bit. Um, 
is a reaction to what happened to the market in 2018, where we had a new call volume again, mm-hmm. um, and the market dropped about 4%, but uh, volatility spiked, actually went up 100%, over 100% on that small downward S&P move. Um, real quick, back up. That's interesting. I hadn't thought of that, of like, if you're feeding this data into an AI model, there could be an argument of like, I don't have enough data from monthly expirations mm-hmm. to give the model enough to work with. Now you're doubling it with with twice a month. You're quadrupling it with weeklies. You're whatever the number is, mm-hmm. 16th thing it with, or 20th thing it with uh, dailies. So now the model has even more and more data to work with and it can be better refined, right? Is there some sort of statistical significance in there of like the more data I have, the better? That that really hasn't affected so much uh, how the model works. I mean, we're really looking at things like what, um, you know, what the, the movements in the markets are like, the, you know, the, the volatility market, say, versus the amount of volatility priced into the options. Um, and then looking over the landscape of that to see where the mispricing is, is the greatest, where we take the, the best advantage of that. Um, now you're you're not an option guru unless you call it the vol surface. I was right? trying to avoid the <laughs> lingo. That's all right. The um, but yeah, like right, and I think of those three D heat maps of Yellowstone or something, right? Of like all right. these peaks and valleys and right. blue and orange and red, right? Mm-hmm. Of like that's what the vol surface, and you can say, okay, this doesn't make sense on this one slice. Right. It should maybe be gently rising, gently falling. You could have some slope, but if there's a big peak and a big valley on this on one slice, right? right something's amiss there. Sure, sure. And you know the, the heat map tends to have a sort of a, a, a gradual gradient type pattern, but you still look at you know where the price is you know high at one expiration versus low at another expiration, and take advantage of that. Um, and so it strikes me that it's pun intended. Strikes me that it's not that easy. Right. Like, so just because one's more expensive than the other doesn't necessarily mean the one's overpriced and the one's underpriced. There may be good reasons for that. So kind of how do you view that of like, okay, this is the market is pricing it there. Mm -hmm. Right. So am I do I have a better model? Am I identifying just the mispricing or am I identifying an opportunity? Right. Uh, Well, we we feel like if we're taking into consideration the you know, kind of the known external factors that are affect the, the the market, and we we try and take a a balanced approach. So rather than just kind of selling something outright, we'll buy another thing to hedge. So even if we're wrong, you know, the the we're really trying to look more at the differential between those things rather than kind of the absolute of one thing versus another. Uh, and that's a good segue. That is that why options instead of right, you could have run single stocks into the model. You could have run global stock indices, been long or short stocks, or right. Did the why did you settle on options? Because it's cliche. It gave you more optionality. It gives you more, like you were talking about. I can, I can know that my loss will be truncated here because I just spent premium. I can. Yeah, we we found that the the, the liquidity 
and the consistent differential between um, the amount of risk embedded in the market versus the amount of risk you're being paid for in the in the options, that differential tends to be pretty consistent in the, the broad indices, whereas it can move around a lot more with individual stocks. And with individual stocks, you get that idiosyncratic risk. You know, they're it's just really hard to tell what's, you know, what's affecting an individual stock. It could be, you know, the CFO is about to step down or, you know, he's he's got some health problem that isn't widely known. You know, earnings miss could come out or earnings beat could come out. There are just so many factors that can affect an individual stock, whereas, you know, the, the broad market tends to, to diversify all those solidiosyncratic risks. I could argue that these days, like those top 10 stocks have mastered taking away all those idiosyncratic risks, right? That's why they just keep getting bigger and bigger. Um, if you're a trillion dollar company, you're not going to move 10% a day on some unknown risk, right? They're going to telegraph. Yeah, well, look at look at NVIDIA yeah, just over the crazy. last couple of months. Um, you know, they had a, a day a month or so ago where they were up, what, 30, 40% or something. And then on earnings, they were up 10%. Uh, I think they gave a lot of that back. But, um, you know, but that's your... the sixth largest company by market cap, I think. Right. But to your point being it kind of isn't worth it to trade that like if you're right sure you're going to make some money but if you're wrong you could be really wrong in that scenario yeah yeah um you know i i'm sure there are people that you know look at the large companies and do the deep dives and you know have a really good handle on um you know what to expect what's going to affect the stocks but that's just not how we how we want to operate um Right. You want you want to be the good boring, the good type of boring, right? So we kind of buried the lead a little bit here, but let's take a step back, let's take a step up. 30,000 foot view, talk about the trading strategy um, overall, what you're trying to accomplish. Uh, and then we can dive into some of the details. What would your what's the 30 second elevator pitch on what you're trying to do with it? Well, I think the, the principle underlying what we're doing is really taking advantage of that differential that I met, mentioned. So it's the differential between the amount of risk in the market and the amount of risk you're being paid for in the options. And, and it's really a lot like, you know, I, I draw the analogy to an insurance company, say like a, like a Geico, where, you know, if you have a car and you insure it with maybe Geico, you're paying them, say, $1,000 a year for insurance. But when they take all the people like you and they add them all up and they average them, the cost embedded in that policy is more like, say, $800. And so they've got this $200, 20% profit margin. It's really the same thing with options. And options is really the only financial instrument that I can think of, aside from, say, an insurance policy, where you've got that positive expected future value on a risk-adjusted basis. So with stocks, you know, if you buy and I sell, if it goes up, you win, I lose, vice versa. And it's a it's a random walk with bonds, really the same thing. And when you take when you take out the default rate and the recovery rate, you're you're left with the risk-free rate of return. But with options, you really got that that profit margin built in. And so what we're trying to do is find 
the best way to take advantage of that profit margin, find where that profit margin is is the highest and and sell those policies or where it's the lowest and and buy those policies. Um so like Geico with less funny commercials. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The, um, we don't have a gecko. <laughs> the and so the whole concept there is I need to be widely diversified, right? So that is the index giving you enough of that diversification. Or you're saying it's not just the index, but different strikes, different tenors. Well, you know, we think the index diversifies out a lot of that risk, that idiosyncratic risk. So, you know, if a, if a hurricane goes through and, you know, wipes out NVIDIA's manufacturing plant, that's going to be a pretty bad event, but it's the impact on the S&P 500 is going to be pretty minimal. You know, so we're really diversifying out that idiosyncratic risk. And then how do you think about that? The Shouldn't the option already reflect that pricing or you're saying there's built-in skew that investors are overpaying for protection or something of that nature that kind of builds this mechanism in? It's really the latter. So there, there really are no natural sellers of options, just like there are no natural sellers of insurance policies. I mean, you know, there are natural buyers of options, the, you know, the market, the, the value of the, the U.S. equity market is, $30 trillion or some, you know, it's probably even larger now. But so you've got all these insurance companies, pension funds, um, endowments that are long the market. And so they they need to buy protection to protect against downside. You know, so, uh, you know, retirement funds need to buy downside so they can, if the market up, they can still pay the the obligations they've got to all their, their insured, all their pensioners. So they're natural buyers, but there aren't really any natural sellers on the other side. And so that's why you've got that that um, embedded premium, that excess, you know, uh, risk premium. The, and so talk a little bit, but it's not always like that, right? So in a risk off environment that can get or vice versa can move right. around. So right. uh, we talked offline, you have a bit of a construct of these four, the market's always in one of four quadrants. Uh, can you talk through that a little bit, what those four quadrants are and how you kind of view the what makes them different and what you do different in each of them? Sure. So so our models are uh, attempting to look at the direction of really the two main components of what we're, we're working with, the underlying market and the volatility that's reflected in that market. So the, the S&P and the VIX for simplification purposes. And so we're we're looking at whether we see the market going up or down, and whether we see volatility going up and down. And so depending upon that, we'll modulate the amount of risk or the type of positions that we're taking on. You know, when the market's going down, we'll you know of course try and take uh, less market exposure. You know, probably less um, short S and P S and P put exposure, maybe even go long S and P puts. Similarly, when the market's uh, going up, we'll try and take you know long S&P exposure, less short call exposure. And then when the volatility, we see the volatility going down, we'll try and take more short volatility exposure. You know, we try and hedge that, of course. And the opposite, we see volatility going up. Uh, so I lost the four quadrants in there somewhere. So quadrant so, one so is- So the four quadrants are, um, you could say, kind of across the top. 
it's what's the market doing up or down and then across the side it's what's volatility doing up or down and so you've got these two factors uh times two is four dimensions got it so market up vol up market up vol down right market down vol up market down vol down exactly um and so that shifts how often monthly in real time in your model does it 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 really varies there there are periods where we'll be in one quadrant and the most you know the the, the quadrant where we we find ourselves most frequently is up market down volatility and in general you see those those two uh instruments inversely correlated and that's the case they're inversely correlated about 80 percent of the time uh, but so probably about 65% of the time it's up market, uh, down volatility, uh, probably another 15, it's up market, up volatility, and the other, you know, 10 each, say, in down market, down volatility, up market, up volatility. Um, 65, 15, 10, 10, 100. Good work. Off the top of your head there. Um, so 65% up market, down volume. Right. Or, and to your, I think you answered, I was kind of saying, does the, yeah, you're not just at the end of every month saying, where's the market at and redeploying. It's looking yeah. at it daily. Right. So you would ask kind of what the frequency is. So, you know, overall, we tend to be in that up market down volatility. We can be in that, that quadrant for long periods of time. If you go back to uh, 2020 from, say, early March through you know, middle, well, even even the end of the year, we don't, we really only shifted out of that quadrant for a couple of days, kind of towards the end of the summer, and then a couple of days in the fall. So that was kind of nine months of the year where we were in one, one quadrant. 20, really, really not 2020 with COVID, you mean 2019? Uh, no, 2020, once we got through the, the big drop in got it, got it. March, right. the market just, you know, we were, we were down with 25, 30%. The market just just rebounded and really pretty consistently um, came back. And so in those environments and overall, let's take a step back. So you're trying to capture as much of the market upside as possible? Right, and avoid the downside as much as possible. Um, and so that seems like makes you different from some of these other, right? So if I hear that, up front, I'm like, oh, you're kind of in this hedged equity bucket, right? Of like, I'm participating in equities with a bit of a hedge. Right. But from what you said before, the elevator pitch, it's not quite like that because you have these other option strategies that you're trying to um, generate some income from and generate some different types of returns than just owning the stocks and hedging them or owning right. the index the, and hedging them. That's right. The, the hedged equity funds that we see really kind of have one approach which they use consistently really all the time so they're, they're typically uh the vast you know the vast majority of the big ones are long in equity position and then they'll a lot of them will do a, a costless collar around that so they'll they'll buy a put underneath they'll sell a call up above and then they'll sell another put down below to to balance out the the economics um and there are you know some very large funds that do that but again, it's just sort of sort of one thing. And so they do well within that, you know, the top part of that band. So when the market's doing up, going up and they're up, you know, say less than 5% for the quarter, 
they'll do they'll do pretty well and track the market. When the market's down, you know, between zero and five percent, they'll typically be down 100 percent of the market. So you really get kind of that 100 percent correlation between, say, you know, plus five, minus five, or wherever they they place their bands. Where we're, um, you know, we're really doing really four things to to add economics. Five things really to add economics to our uh, uh, to our fund. Um, you know, one of them is this premium capture that I I mentioned, where we're selling positions around the market, um, and so that'll do well as long as the market stays within a band say, you know, up or down. So that that contrasts really dramatically with the hedged equity, which are really kind of linear, linearly correlated with the market within that, you know, plus minus 5%. So we'll have economics really that are pretty consistent from that strategy, as long as the market stays within, you know, up a couple percent, down a few percent on, you know, when we're doing premium collection, it's really a, a weekly position that we're taking. Uh, we take those positions three times a week. So Monday, Wednesday, Friday, we're dealing with the three expirations. So we're looking to minimize, we're looking for a minimal amount of market movement over the course of a, of a week. And since we're putting those positions on three times a week, we're really, we're really rolling the positions constantly. So our, you know, the average life of those positions is about three and a half days. So the market really has to move pretty dramatically for those positions to get hurt. And then is that is it fair to just say that's uh, classic option selling? Right. Yeah, that really is. Um, uh, and but on both sides. Right. So in theory, you're a little bit hedged there. If one side goes, the other side's going to erode. Exactly. It, it's impossible to lose money on both sides. So one side will will be profitable. And that's that's an important part of what we do, but it's it's one part where there are option premium funds that do just that, and so they'll do that and they'll lever up, um, you know, 10, 15 to one. There was a fund that um, got hurt pretty dramatically in twenty eighteen. They were levered, I think it was sixty to one. So they'll take they'll take a lot of leverage um, to get consistent returns, which look really good until something dramatic happens. And so that that dramatic event, you know, that, you know, once in a lifetime event happens every couple of years now. We so will put just, a link. We did a whole, we called it an autopsy. It was the LJM fund. So we have a great exactly. blog post uh, doing an autopsy on that fund's demise. Um, right. Yeah. And there were a couple which we'll of put in the show notes of this. But yeah, like you can get in trouble in a hurry there. So that was 2018, and there were a couple in 2020 that had the same sort of problem. So that's one part of what we do. Another part of what we do is we look for uh, some market participation, and our market participation component is typically around 40%. So that's going to give us about 40% of the upside and downside, but through the entire range of the market. So if the market's up 10%, it would be you know 40% of that 10%. If the market's down. 10%, same thing. But there we're using our directional indicators to try and modulate that. So we're trying to get a little bit more of that when the market's up, a little bit less than that when the market's going down. And when the market has these large, these long-term um, trends, we do a little bit better 
during those during those cycles when it's when it's vacillating you know on a daily or you know by daily basis um we can get whipsawed and get get hurt on those positions so you know we're looking for the market to go up we increase our participation the market goes down we lose a little bit more than we'd like uh and that's accomplished via the options or via just holding futures Definitely a little bit of both futures. Just, just holding the future. All right. And so sometimes that'll ramp up to close to 50%, sometimes down to 30%. Right. In that band. That's right. It's it's usually kind of 40% plus or minus 10. Um and how did you arrive at the 40% target? Oh, uh, we were looking at the overall risk of our portfolio, looking at kind of how much risk we wanted to take on. And that was that was where we came out, forty plus or minus ten. And I think it seemed to be a good counterbalance to uh, what other funds in our space were doing. We saw uh, hedged equity funds, for example, that seemed to have kind of that fifty percent correlation. So that seemed like it would be a good uh, counterpart to those funds. And then you sort of mentioned it, but is this your understanding? I think it's mine of. Right, some of the hedged equity product, they're selling the call in order to buy the put. So that's capping their upside. So if the market's up 50% a year, they might only get 10%, right? Who knows where that top upside call is, but they're- on what their expirations are. So if they're doing quarterly, they would be limited to that 5% on say a quarterly basis. If it's annual, it would be limited on an annual basis. So uh, a lot will do sort of a quarterly reset. Um, and it's it'll be like clockwork. So December 31st, they'll put their positions on that run through March 31st, et cetera. Right. And I feel like a lot of those programs haven't had a bad run because they haven't seen either this big up market where they got capped out and everyone's like, what the heck? We only made 8%. Why? Or right. vice versa of like, it goes through that short put on the bottom and the losses, right? Be like, okay, I, I only lost, right? If they're down 10%, maybe they only lose eight. If they're mm-hmm. down 40, they might lose 38. So it seems like a uh, right. unequal. Yeah. I mean, there, there are markets that can be really bad for them, like a you know, like a market that just declines 5% a quarter, four quarters in a row. So they'll be down 20% mm-hmm. in a year when the market's down 20% in the year. Right. No, nothing hedged about it. The yeah. uh, ver- versus you guys, because you don't have the full exposure by definition, would be some percentage. Right. In fact, if, you know, depending upon the exact circumstances, a slow grind down of you know five percent a quarter could actually wind up um, being a good year for us. Yeah. Well, I want to talk through some of these different environments and how you view them well, and so next, we were but, talking about the yeah so it was one was part. premium capture two market participation right so the third thing we're doing is is an upside uh participation uh and so what we're trying to do is set up positions so that if the market does kind of ramp up we can take a little bit more advantage of that so a structure we like for that is a is a call ratio what we're typically doing there is um we'll use a, a what we call a one by two so we'll be long one call near the market and short two calls further out. Typically those positions are about two months to expiration. The long is about 200 points out of the money. 
and the short is 100 points out of outside of that. So that position will be profitable all the way up to 400 points uh, above the market. Uh, we typically do those two to three months uh, in expiration, and we'll do them typically every other week. So we'll have uh, four to six of those on, on at a time. So kind of every other week going out for two to three months. And then we'll stagger the, the, the strikes as well. So the first one, might, the two month might be 200 points above the market. Two and a half might be 250 points above the market. The three and a half, three months might be 300 points above the market, et cetera. So even if the market does really accelerate through that, that first earlier um, set of positions, we could capture the economics on the, the longer dated positions. And do you view that as, so it, it's a bullish trade. It needs the market to move up in order to make, in order to be profitable. Right. And so we're doing those because we're selling to and buying one way we position them. Uh, we're doing those pretty inexpensively. We're typically getting them for, it's about a dollar, um, a dollar to two, depending really upon the ball surface yeah. and what's going on in the market. Um, you know, we've, we've actually paid up a little bit for some recently, uh, but typically they're pretty cheap. So even if the market doesn't, you know, ramp up into that uh, lower long position that we have, the economic impact is pretty, pretty modest. And then that's a good example for people models. to try and understand. So I'm buying it for, call it a dollar. Mm -hmm. What does success look like there? You're selling it out for how much? Well, we did we did well with those, say, in the third, second, third, fourth quarter of 2020, where we were buying them for a dollar, we were getting them for free. We started selling them out around twenty dollars. Uh, we were selling them all the way up into the forties. I think the best we've ever done is sixty. Hmm. So you know the the economics can be pretty dramatic. But at the some point, if it goes through the upper strikes, it starts to come back down. It can go right. negative. So, so what we're doing is we'll, you know, depending upon where the market is and the, the time to expiration, et cetera, uh, we'll, be, we'll be selling those out as they start to become profitable. Um, sometimes we sell too early. Uh, we rarely sell. We rarely sell too late. We're, we're taking economics when we can. Uh, all right. Number, is there a fourth? I think um, you said five originally. This is the old, uh, who was that politician? You said three things and could only remember two of them. Yeah, well, it was actually five. But so the fourth. <laughs> what was that guy? The Texas uh, governor, Rick Perry. I think that's who it was. Does he do that? So the fourth is is downside protection. And there, you know, there are a lot of ways we can protect against downside. Uh, when volatility gets cheap, we'll be buying puts. We can, we can buy those outright. We can buy them and in verticals, so we'll buy a put near the market and sell one further from the market to minimize the cost a little bit. We can do uh, we can do calendars where we'll say um, buy one for a month out and sell one for uh, a month further out, or do the opposite depending on what the the market, the economics look like. Um, we like actually hedging by going long VIX futures. Um, so we'll do that frequently, you know, depending upon what the, the volatility space looks like. Um, 
Sometimes we'll actually even, in fact, frequently we'll go short volatility. And when we do that, so we'll sell a, a, a VIX future. And when we do that, we'll take an offsetting position. And so there are a couple of ways, we, there are three ways we can, we can do that. Um, we can sell volatility, say sell a VIX future and sell S&P futures against that with modeling that there's a certain relationship between uh, how much the VIX moves against how much the S&P moves. And so we're typically doing kind of two to four um, to one. So we'll sell, you know, say a dollar worth of VIX futures and we'll sell two, three or four dollars worth of S&P futures against that. Um, expecting that the S&P will go up less than the uh, VIX will go down. And so, but, so that's not necessarily part of the downside participation, but that's a well, it actually is in that um, you, you'll see it really earlier in the month where the market would actually move down a little bit, but we would um, make money on the, the decline in the S&P and lose less on the decline yeah, on the short, short, on the short, okay. short VIX. And so when the, you know, when the S&P is down, you know, two and the, and the VIX is down one, that would be a profitable trade for us. There were days actually when the VIX was high enough as a starting point where both the VIX and the S&P were down. So we made money on both sides of that trade. So the, the third way we, we, we do that is um, calendar. So we'll be short or long the front month and then the opposite on the back month. So for example, we might be short a dollar of the VIX 30 day and long a dollar or dollar 10 or dollar 20 of the VIX 60 day. And that, do you view that as a long Vega or it's short fit? Like what's, it's totally dependent on the curve. It really depends on the curve. What we, we really like to do is when you've got the right volatility structure, we like to take the opposite where we're long the front month and short the back month. And so that would be, you know, what you call long Vega. Of course, if we're short front, long back, it would be short Vega. Um, and then the third thing we do is we will go short volatility, but we'll, so that'd be just short of VIX future, but we'll go, um, we'll go long VIX calls against that. And we typically do that in a pretty high ratio. So we'll be long VIX calls, you know, two to one, three to one, four to one. Currently it's five to one. And so in a Matt, in a March, 2020 type thing, that's going to do much right. better than the short does worse. Absolutely. Um, all right. So that whole bucket under downside protection is designed to be, if the market in this happened with the fund in March, 2020, right? If the market's down sharply, these, which we don't get too far in the weeds, but we do here on this podcast, so it's fine, but they have convexity, right? So you're, right, right. you're maybe short, the less convex thing and long, the right. more convex right, thing. Right. So the, Right. And so I think one of the, the, the key aspects of what we're doing, which again, differentiates us from many of the others, like you mentioned, the, the hedge equity is we'll move around, you know, we'll change our portfolio based on where we are on that, on that quadrant, uh, on that, on that four by four grid. And so, for example, in uh, March of 2020, uh, we went from being, you know, short vol, short S&P to long vol to long vol, long S&P. And so we were losing money on our long S&P position, 
what we're making up for it in the long, long fixed futures position. And there again, it was kind of a, it was, it was about a three to one that we had. So we were long one dollar VIX, uh, long one dollar of S and P. But the S and P went down twenty five ish percent. The VIX futures went up four four hundred percent. So yeah. we um, right four hundred four hundred fifty. So we made you know sixteen to one on our VIX futures where we were losing, you know, 0.25 to one on the, on the S&P. And I want to circle back to that because I think that's important, but let's finish out your five pillars here. So the, right. So the last, and and this is, this is really uh, something that's, that's probable for us recently. We've, we've been doing it for years, but it just hasn't really uh, added much to our economics. Um, because what we're doing is in the derivative market, we don't actually purchase positions. We post collateral against those positions on margin. Um, and the margin rates on the instruments that we trade is, is really very favorable. So it leaves us with um, typically 70 to 80% of our NAV in cash. The, the rest being what we post against collateral, post against the, the post collateral against our positions. So that cash recently, you know, starting really kind of last year is now earning uh, interest income for us again. Um, you know, starting last year, it was in the, you know, 2% range. It's gone up to four. I think we're getting, you know, four to 5% on our cash balance now. And so that just drops right to the bottom line. Right. Um, now we've always done that. We, you know, we was profitable for us back in the, mid-teens, but then, of course, with zero interest rates, it really didn't add much for us. So that's essentially like the fund is a 90-10 fund or something, right? Or a 75-25 cash alts fund, right? And that 75 is income-producing T-bills. It really is, and that touches on, you know, what we think is an important part of what we're doing, which is, you know, we're, we want to have a return. We want a positive return. We want to do well relative to, you know, what we look at really is not the S&P so much as a, as a, as a balanced portfolio, like a 60-40 portfolio of, uh, of S&P versus that. We're not really just looking at, at the return itself, but we're looking at the volatility of our returns versus the volatility of that, of that basket. And we think because of these five components that we've got, embedded in our fund, we really compare pretty favorably on a volatility perspective relative to that 60-40 basket, uh, certainly than, you know, than other funds. Right. And I would, if I'm being critical, I'd say, okay, but it, I could just get the same, I could lower my volatility by just doing half the amount of S&P, right? And could I get the same or similar volatility if I just did half? But would you come back and say, well, yeah, but then you're not getting the ability to flip the sign in a in a big down move. You're not getting the ability in a flat market to earn some of this option premium, right? So help me understand that of like, yeah, I think wh- I think why wouldn't to... I just do forty percent S and P and get lower volatility and lower return? Like your pillar two, like I could just do ha- half the S and P and get nearly the same place. I I think you'd have to look at how the sixty forty performs versus some percentage of the S&P. And I imagine there's a a point there where they 
they equate, equate but the the 6040 is going to give you um a lower volatility than the S&P itself will whether that's just S&P or some percentage S&P um and and we think that lower volatility is important because it it lets an investor or a financial advisor keep their investor in the fund when when times get really tough so if you look back at times like say early you know, early 2020, when the market's down 20, 25, 30%, you know, there were countless investors that would call up their financial advisor, or, you know, do it themselves and just exit the market because they, you know, they'd had enough pain. They don't want to deal with it anymore. And so they, they wind up because of the volatility getting out at exactly the wrong time. And the market turns around and goes up 30, 40, 50%. And so they turn around, and get back in at the market exactly the wrong time. And so the lower volatility, we think, lets an investor stay in and weather that storm a lot better. And then, so talk through, we kind of hinted on it, like how you would expect the strategy in some different environments. So, right, like a 2017 type, very little volatility, markets just crawling, you know, higher 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 market i think we went 11 out of 12 months and six months without a one percent down move in 2017 so that kind of market you're probably in that most of the time in the up market down vol quadrant um and are expecting what to have that maximum market participation yeah that that can be a that can be a very good market for us because you know our our market participation is doing well uh, if the volatility is low, um, there aren't a lot of, you know, the volatility of volatility, if you will, you know, is, is low, then we can do well with our, our premium capture. Our upside participation could be kicking in. You know, we're wasting money on our downside protection, but the others should more than offset that. And then with high interest rates, you know, getting, say, 5% on 70% of the, the portfolio can add three and a half percent to the bottom line, you know, before we do anything. So that could be, that could be a good market for us. I think really kind of the markets that are difficult for us are where, you know, we kind of touched on this before, but it's really kind of where we get, where we get whipsawed. So, you know, we go from an up market to a down market. So we're changing our participations and our structures. And then we revert back to an up market and we revert back to a down market. And so the whipsaws can really wind up eating our economics. Um, you know, we had we had kind of a tough time in 2020. Uh, you know, we outperformed the market, but sorry, 2022. We outperformed the market, but um, you know, not as much as we would like. And really, the, the reason for that is that our, you know, while we're we're buying for protection on the downside, as we entered the year, volatility was was priced pretty high. Uh, in fact, it was probably pretty fairly priced, maybe even overpriced. So as we were buying protection, um, there really wasn't a lot of upside for it. There really wasn't a lot of room for it to go. And then I know you said you're wasting money buying protection, but I know you don't really believe you're, you're wasting that money, right? Because in a, right, so you have this slow grind upward, probably going to be good for the strategy. You're going to almost max participation plus some option, plus some T-Blender slow grind downward 2022 you said not that great but to me like 
you're only going to lose somewhere half ish, right? Of what the of what the market did because you're only participating forty percent. So even if those option strategies don't kick in, they're not going to bleed enough to turn right into a full S and P loss or something. Um, so yeah. I know, yeah, clients probably don't like that of like, hey, I can't eat relative performance, right? It's the old line of like, great, you lost me half, but I still lost. Uh, and then the third scenario would be a sharp move downward. Right. So in a sharp move downward, that's where I come in. I don't think you believe that you're wasting money buying that downside protection. Right. Well, right. I mean, I, I said wasted. It was it didn't it didn't fall down to our bottom line. But yeah, yeah. just like an insurance policy, you know, when you're writing your check to Geico, if you haven't had an accident, you might, you know, it was it was important that you had that position, but it didn't really do you a lot of good. But, um, you know, so so a good market for us can be, well, you know, a good example is is early 2020, where, um, you know, we were coming into the year in a, in a pretty normal environment that had been pretty, pretty calm. So volatility was was, you know, was priced pretty low. The VIX was in the, you know, 12 ish range. And so as the market started to turn, it was a great opportunity for us to buy protection, you know, very economically. And so we started buying those, um, you know, those, those VIX futures as the pricing was around, you know, 16. Um, and then the market just really started to drop. The the price of protection and the, the VIX really took off. And so, you know, the price of those positions went from, you know, 16 to I, I think we started, I think we held on to them all the way up to 82. We, were, we added on the way up, but, um, you know, we sold some out at, at the top, which was, eight, well, they they expired at 82. So it's, you know, kind of a fourfold increase in the, in the value of those. So that can be a, that can be a good environment yeah. for us where, you know, you're, you're kind of coming out of this, there's this calm before the storm and there's an opportunity for us to, to, um acquire some protection inexpensively and then of course the market just you know flips and we can take take real advantage of that it seems like that's the answer to a smart smart ass like me of like why wouldn't i just do there's plenty of things i could do to get less volatility right why do i need to do all this like well because i can right i can change the sign in a big down move like that a big spike down that's true. And, I, and we do think we compare on a risk adjusted, so volatility comparable basis. We think we compare pretty favorably to, you know, the 60-40 portfolio, which is really kind of our benchmark. You know, we could look at different scenarios of how long you'd have to be the S&P to, to outperform us. I think you'd still have more volatility. Um, but in fact, I'm, I'm certain of it. Um, the only yeah, way to have the return and lower volatility is by adding that that debt portion, which of course, you know, hurts you pretty dramatically in in twenty twenty two. Right. All, a lot of those logic is based on before bonds were super volatile, right? So right. even if they're clipping along a nice return, if they're super volatile, it's going to make that portfolio a little more volatile, which which breaks a lot of that modeling. Thoughts on zero DTE. It's an interesting space. It's not one we've really, we've gotten involved in yet. Like crazy um, uh, meme stock option traders, all that stuff. 
yeah we it's not our thing either <laughs> leave uh, it to the pros have you seen no, the uh in that. there's a movie coming out about the uh gamestop stuff and that oh yeah it looks fantastic like it's got ken griffin and all the fed and the guy from melvin capital not themselves but actors playing that was them. an interesting story yeah uh so yeah Oops. i'm gonna I'm going to try and get I'm that sure going. there'll be some about crypto and SBF coming out as well. Oh, yeah. I'm sure they're lining up paying to get that going. Um, great, Russ. Well, this has been fun. Thanks for all the info. Um, what's your, um, just quick, before we go, like, what's your thought on you're running the private fund? You know each investor, maybe, on a, you know, outside your family and friends, you know people personally, and you're explaining it to them versus mutual fund model of you don't really know who's buying it or what they're motives or questions are like has that been hard for you or it's recommended to recommend all fund managers do it uh no it's it's interesting i mean i think i think the the biggest difference between the you know the hedge fund and what we're doing now and you know we've been doing this since 2016 so coming on seven years um is is the daily price discovery um and so with the hedge fund, we had an entire month to uh, work on achieving economics. 15 days after the end of the month, the economics would come out. A week or two after that, investors would want to talk to us. Um, and so then, you know, maybe they'd, they'd subscribe or redeem. They would put in the notice at the end of that month. And so then the funds would flow at the end of the following month. So really, there was kind of a two-month window for ebbs and flows of economics. The, the communications around the fund were a lot more sporadic. Um, here, you know, if we have a if we have a good day, investors see it immediately. If we have a bad day, investors see it immediately. You know, we'll get calls from investors, well, not from investors from FAs, asking, you know, you know, why wasn't the fund up more or you know, why was the fund down or whatever, really kind of on a daily basis. And so uh, that's, we've, got a model, we've, we've kind of managed to work with the financial advisors so they kind of know what to expect and, you know, they can moderate how they communicate with their investors a little better. But it strikes me, what you were just saying, like it doesn't make sense a lot of time to judge funds like this and some other alternatives and options like on a day-to-day -day basis, right? Like, if I sold this option with an expectation that it's going to do X over the next 45 days on day five, if it's losing money and I'm like, I'm out, right. That doesn't make a lot of sense. It's like being a distressed debt mutual fund wouldn't make a lot of sense. Right. And like month two, people are like, Oh, this isn't working. Like, no, that's the whole exactly point is right. we need time in order for it to play out. That's, that's exactly right. And that's the point of a kind of a low volatility, um, more lightly correlated fund. It's a it's a long term investment that lets someone put their put their money into it and watch it grow over time. If they're looking for, you know, the the fast profitable trade, then you know they've got to turn to the cryptos and the memes and things like that. <laughs> you know, they they can you know maybe make fifty percent in a day or whatever the crazy numbers are. Of course, it works the other way as well. Right. All right. The most important question. Did you have all of your hair when you started this one? I have a lot of it still. It's just a lot yeah. Of... Right. Because then we'd be really worried. Yeah. yeah I, I, I had as much hair as you. Whoa. 
All right. So there you go, folks. Don't be an option trader for a living. You might lose your hair. <laughs> Hi, Russ. It's We're been losing fun. our hair, so you don't have to. <laughs> exactly. Appreciate it. That is true, right? Like you're you're looking at all this day to day. You're taking on this volatility. You're analyzing it, right? So the investor doesn't have to do all that work. That's right. Awesome. Uh, appreciate it. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Jeff. Appreciate it. Thanks, Russ. Have a great day. All right, that's it for the pod. Thanks to Russ. Thanks to RCM for sponsoring. Thanks to Jeff Berger for producing. Uh, come back next week. Here our live panel from Philip. It'll be fun. Peace. You've been listening to The Derivative. Links from this episode will be in the episode description of this channel. Follow us on Twitter at RCM Alts and visit our website to read our blog or subscribe to our newsletter at rcmalts.com. If you liked our show, introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe. And be sure to leave comments. We'd love to hear from you. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as legal, business, investment, or tax advice. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of RCM Alternatives, their affiliates, or companies featured. Due to industry regulations, participants on this podcast are instructed not to make specific trade recommendations nor reference past or potential profits, and listeners are reminded that managed futures, commodity trading, and other alternative investments are complex and carry a risk of substantial losses. As such, they are not suitable for all investors.